When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. While we may not be recognizing that we actually have trauma, that we are traumatized, that something difficult happened, it still is logged in our brain in some level and very often in our body. Have you or someone you love been through a traumatic experience? It's more common than many of us realize. More than half of all women will be exposed to at least one traumatic event in their lifetime. But did you know that our coping mechanisms, the way we deal with trauma, can have long-term effects on the mind and body? My body was stuck in fight or flight, and my primary coping mechanism was dissociation. It had served me really well, but doesn't serve you well long-term because you don't actually deal with anything. At the age of 15, Kara Robinson Chamberlain was kidnapped, held captive, and repeatedly assaulted. But she was smart, and she was brave, and she courageously escaped her captor in one piece. One piece on the outside, thousands of hidden pieces on the inside. How does one put themselves back together after a traumatic event? And what role do authentic emotions play in our healing? I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain, and today about coping with trauma. Hello, Kara, and welcome to All the Wiser. Hi, thanks for having me. As I just shared with you, I have fallen in love with your podcast, your new podcast, and it's just a incredibly real and important and refreshing conversation and perspective on true crime. So I'm really excited for our audience to get to know you and also to be introduced to your work because knowing our listeners, I think they're going to love it. It's really special. Yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I think that, honestly, everyone goes through difficult things. I think that's part of the human experience. So the more we have these conversations, the more people will be able to be healed, be able to learn a different perspective, be able to help their loved ones heal and really just begin to grow and and feel less alone. Um, I just think it's it's so important. So I want to go back to the beginning and share with our listeners more about your story, what led you to this work. Tell me first a little bit about the backdrop of your childhood and growing up. So as a child, I was an only child. I still am an only child, but I grew up kind of the the child of a chaotic home. My parents were uh, not right for each other. When I was a child. I 
was a child of what I would characterize as a chaotic home. They fought a lot. They separated and got back together. So being an only child, I sort of had to create my own independence. Our parents were not talking to us about our feelings, and they were not talking to us about the things that were going on around us. So I think my parents did absolutely the best they could, but they had their own stuff going on. So that was kind of the backdrop of of what my childhood looked like. And your life changed dramatically in the summer of 2002. Where were you in your life at this time? I was 15 years old in 2002. And as most teenagers, I had sort of transitioned to hanging out more with my friends. I had a boyfriend and he played baseball. So my best friend and I would always kind of be hanging out with my boyfriend and his friends going to baseball games. It was summer, so there were a lot of sleepovers. I more or less stayed with my best friend at the time all the time. She was either at my house or I was at her house. And so that was kind of the summer, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, a little different than it probably is now. There's no social media, stuff like that. So you're just hanging out with your friends. Kara grew up in Lexington, South Carolina. It was a safe, sweet, suburban town. The kind where a person felt a sense of comfort and safety in their neighborhood. Not a lot of crime, and if there was, no one seemed to know about it. But that all changed on a beautiful late summer day in June, when something horrific happened. So this day in June, it was pretty much a normal day for me. I had spent the night with my friend. I woke up and we were kind of getting ready for our day, called my boyfriend to check in with him, kind of see what his day held, see when we would hang out later. We called some friends to try to plan what our day was going to look like and decided that our friend who lived on the lake, we were going to go hang out with her. So my friend called her mom to see what we needed to do before we left, and her mom asked if we would water the plants out front. My friend wanted to take a shower before we left, kind of refresh herself, and so to kind of expedite the process, I offered to water the plants for her while she took a shower. So I was outside in kind of what I had slept in, just a t-shirt and a pair of uh, soft shorts. And I was watering the plants. I noticed a car driving by. I was 15, getting ready to get my license. And so I was kind of looking at cars a little bit more intensely than maybe I would have the year before. And I noticed the car because I was like, I wouldn't mind driving that car. Normally not something that I would have paid much attention to had it not been something interesting to me. So the car is driving by kind of on the way out of the neighborhood. And then I continue watering the plants. And a few moments later, the car comes back into the neighborhood and pulls directly into the driveway. A man gets out of the car. He is not what I thought at the time of as creepy or scary. He was a middle-aged white man. He was not furtive or nervous. He was wearing jeans, sneakers, a button-down that was tucked into his jeans, 
And he was wearing a baseball cap, but it wasn't pulled low, kind of disguising his face or anything like that. He walked directly over to me and maintained an appropriate distance away from me. He didn't walk directly over to me and enter my personal space of protection or anything like that. He came over and said that he saw me outside and was driving around distributing some magazines or pamphlets, and he asks if my parents are home. I say, this is my friend's house, and he says, okay, well, what about her parents? Are her parents home? And I say, no, her mom's not home. And he says, okay, well, how about if I just leave these with you? And I said, that sounds fine. And so at that point, he steps in to presumably hand me these these magazines or these pamphlets. And at the same time, he's handing them to me with his left hand. He puts his arm around my neck with his right hand, puts a gun to the side of my neck. And he says, come with me. I immediately go into a stress fear response and I say, stop. And he says, no, you're going to come with me. And at that point, he, with his arm around my neck, concealing this small caliber handgun, he walks me around to the driver's side of his car. It's a two-door car. He opens the driver's door, puts the seat forward, and tells me to get in. I look in the back seat and see a large plastic container in the back seat. And I say, where am I supposed to go? And he says, get in the container. So I seemingly to the outside perspective, willingly get in the back of the car. And he puts the lid loosely on, gets in the car, and reverses out of the driveway. And that's how I was taken. And you said you immediately knew that you were going to be sexually assaulted. Is that right? Yes. I pretty much immediately knew that a grown man does not kidnap a young girl for anything other than nefarious reasons. And so I assumed that he was going to commit some type of crime while he had me. And I also assumed that I would be sexually assaulted. And I also somehow had the intuition that people who did these kinds of things would thrive off of control and my fear. And so I think this is just a testament to our fight or flight, our survival mechanisms that are within us, that I recognized what he wanted and what he needed. And I responded in a way that would keep me safe, but would allow me to maintain a little bit of autonomy. And so knowing those things... I was somehow able to lock down the fear because I wanted that to be my way of fighting back, my autonomy, that I didn't want to give him that. So I prepared myself for the inevitable, and I also prepared myself for escape because I always knew that I would escape. That was me focusing on the end game and looking for that opportunity. When I've heard you talk about this window of time, Mm -hmm. there's 
two things you bring up that I think um, one is just really informative of this idea of dissociation mm-hmm. and explaining to people what that means, both emotionally and physically, because immediately that happened to you as a protective mechanism. And this other piece, as you said, where you shut that part down and you start focusing on information gathering, mm-hmm. which people have been, I think, deeply intrigued by how quickly you're getting serial numbers and information. So can yeah. you speak to dissociation, why that happens, how it was happening to you? Yeah. So when we are in stressful situations, we have an autonomic nervous system. People commonly know that as fight or flight that automatically responds when our lives are in danger or when our nervous system assumes that our lives are in danger. And people have heard of fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And I like a little bit better the fourth description of appease. And so my response was a little bit of all of them. And that I think that's pretty common that people have some combination of response. So my primary stress response was to shut down kind of what was happening to my body and, and what was around me. And so I more or less entered this dissociative or separating my mind from my body state. I was able to shut down the fear and it wasn't necessarily a, I'll say conscious decision. It was more of what my body chose to do because what was happening was too much emotionally and mentally and physically for me to comprehend. And so my body protected me in that way of dissociating. And that enabled me to be more logical in my approach of, okay, well, I'm going to escape. And when I escape, what do I need to do? I need to have information to identify this person. And that's when I started memorizing information. And we all know, we've all heard of these crazy stories of women whose children are trapped in a car and they have this superhuman strength, right? So adrenaline, it's kind of a drug. It enables you to do things that you wouldn't normally be able to do, like memorize large pieces of information in my case. And so that was kind of my my stress response. And I also had a fair amount of appeasal, which is essentially co-regulating the nervous system of the person that is a threat to you. So remaining calm and kind of going with what this person wanted from me was what that looked like for me. I think it's so important because people are going to instinctually insert what they think would happen to them, right? Were you panicking? Were you screaming? Were you fighting? And you weren't in a state of fear. You were not in a state of panic. As you explained and broke down, you moved into fact gathering and your body was protecting itself by not going into panic. So I I think it's really important. So you're gathering information down to, I believe, a serial number on this box that he's put you into. And I know as he's getting closer to his apartment, he 
pulls over and there is additional restraints. What happens when he pulled over initially after kidnapping you? So my captor drove for about 15 minutes before he pulled over. And at that point, he put a ball gag in my mouth and he restrained me with handcuffs at my wrist and leg restraints on my legs. He told me to scream as loud as I could. And he said, okay, good. And then he put the lid all the way on the container and drove a few more minutes. How aware were you of distance and space? I assume you sense that you've you've gone somewhere, you're going to, you know, go into a building or a home. But what was that time of him getting out of the car and into his apartment? There was a sense of noise around me. I knew that I was somewhere where there were other people moving around outside. We all know that whenever one of your senses is removed, so for me that would be sight, whenever one of your senses is removed, your others kind of get heightened. And so for me, I could hear and was more perceptive of what was going on around me. So when my captor got out of the car and left me in the container, he was not gone for very long, but I could hear people moving around. And when he came back, he said he was going to pick up the container and that I had to be quiet. And he did. He picked up the container, carried it a short way, and he set it down. And I could tell uh, from the sensation that he was dragging it over concrete and then over a threshold into a quieter space, which I found out was his apartment. And the apartment in itself is just a traumatic environment. I mean, what do you find in inside his apartment? His apartment was initially, my, my impression was it was very cluttered. So there was just kind of stuff everywhere stacked on every surface. There were also animals, so like lizards and guinea pigs and birds and different animals all around. There were signs that a woman lived there. She wasn't there, but there were signs that a woman lived in the apartment from, you know, hairspray and feminine products in the bathroom to a hairbrush with long red hair. So I was just kind of locking everything into my mind that I could about the apartment. Once Kara was in the apartment, her captor started asking her a lot of very personal questions and writing down the answers. Things like, when was her last period? What was her friend's name? What was her boyfriend's name? And where did he live? Did she love him? Was she a virgin? He also laid out the rules he would enforce while she was there. The most important rule being that she had to do exactly what he said at any time. And if she didn't, there would be consequences. But if she did, there would be rewards. And he emphasized that by reminding me that he would always have a gun or some type of weapon while I was there. And he kind of finished it all off by saying, and, you know, whenever I'm done with you, I will take you somewhere that you don't know where you are and I'll let you go. So 
You talk about memory and just how unique our memories are to us as individuals, but also during a traumatic experience. So can you explain your memory and how you experience it and process it to our listeners? Absolutely. I think most people hear all of this information that I memorized during this traumatic event, and it surprises them because they think, I can't remember anything. I would never be able to remember all these things. Well, here's a great newsflash. That's not how my memory works in general. I also have a very terrible memory, and my memory in general tends to work like snapshots, photos. So if I think back on any event, and this was true in school for tests, uh, this has been true for the rest of my life, I would see an image. So if it was in school, I would see an image of the page of notes, and I could remember what was on that page. But for this traumatic experience, when I think back on it, I don't see a movie playing. I don't hear sounds. I see snapshots. So I see a snapshot of the car that pulled into the driveway. I see a snapshot of the first time I saw the inside of the apartment. And so that's kind of how my memory works. So when I tell this story of what happened, I have these snapshots that I can put together and essentially flip through really quickly like a flip book, and I can get an image of what happened, but they're not necessarily in order always. So when I share my story, the dialogue is very often lost. And I think that's interesting to people. And I think that is often the case with trauma. Some people may have a very vivid memory where they remember sights, sounds, they remember everything. And we all log that on some level in our subconscious, which is how trauma actually happens and how we end up with things like triggers. But when I think back and tell the story, it's an image of snapshots for me. You know, I know we had talked about dissociation and compartmentalizing and and early on how your body went into this, uh, you weren't you didn't feel fear. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to say you didn't feel fear? I think I felt fear, but it was... You didn't feel panic. Correct. It was very subdued because my nervous system, my mind on some level recognized that if I really felt the panic that I should have in that situation, that I would not be able to survive. And so my my body protected me in that way. I think the most panic that I felt during those 18 hours was when my captor told me he had to make a phone call and he was going to put me back in the container. He put the gag back in my mouth, put me in the container, put the lid on top, and put a blanket over the top. And I just remember being in that container and thinking, I can't breathe. I can't breathe over and over and over. And it became just this overwhelming fear that I was going to suffocate. I was going to die. And I had a panic attack at that time. And 
he came back in. Obviously, I was making some level of noise that he could hear. He asked me what the problem was, and I told him I couldn't breathe. And he said, I'll take the gag out, and I won't put the lid on if you promise to be quiet and just remember that I'll always have a gun or a weapon. And I told him I would do that, and so he did. So that was an example of that primary rule, which was if I listen and obey, there would be consequences or rewards. And he was on the phone. He was calling his wife, right, which is why he needed you to be quiet. Right. I found that out much later. I didn't find that out while I was there. But, yes, he was calling his wife, which was the woman that I had recognized lived in the apartment with him. Another thing I've heard you talk about, which I think is really interesting, is this notion or idea of you describing your experience. And you've said there's almost times you're sitting next to him on the couch and talking as if like you're talking to somebody on a bus. And that at points and the interview and being interviewed after this, you would say, well, he was being nice and almost feeling ashamed or that people were shaming you for saying, how could you say he was being nice? And I don't, there's just so much to think about on a deeper level about language and your experience and how, what people perceive and want it to be, what what they want you to experience. Does that make sense? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I think people sort of assign characteristics to someone that would kidnap a teenager and sexually assault her. That's where we get ourselves in a bind sometimes, specifically with sexual assaults and accusations of sexual assault, where people will say, but that's not the person I know. And I think that's how someone like my captor was able to fly under the radar because he's a mastermind. Yeah. Right. And he could turn it on and off. And he was a quote, nice guy. Now, of course, after the fact, some people came out and they said, oh, yeah, he was always a little creepy. Well, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, But in general, most people felt that he was a nice guy. And that was, for the most part, my overall experience, which is so complex to, for me to say. It's, it's strange for me to think and to say, like, he was nice to me while he was doing this terrible thing. Yeah, which makes him all the creepier and more sadistic, right? Right. And for him, it was, this was him acting out a scenario or a fantasy. He did not want to be this creepy, terrible person. This was essentially a fantasy that he had acted out with his significant others previously. And so for him, this was just another fantasy that he was acting out. So yeah, it's it's so complex. <laughs> and you were sexually assaulted. You don't remember how many times, is that right? Yeah, I couldn't even begin to guess at this point. It was, I mean, it was 18 hours. I probably slept maybe four hours during those 18 hours. And it was it was more or less like continuous through those 18 hours.
At some point during all of this, he cooked some food and asked Kara if she wanted to eat, which she didn't. Instead, she tried to find another way to appease him and offered to sweep the kitchen floor. At every point while she was sweeping, she was scanning the room for information, anything she could find that could be helpful in identifying him. She saw some magnets on the fridge. The ones that stuck in her mind were for a doctor and a dentist. Names that she memorized and placed in the vault of facts that she was collecting. Coming up, Kara's quick thinking and incredible bravery pay off as she escapes from her captor. Back in just a moment. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. For today's episode, Kara chose the South Carolina Victim Assistance Network. For over 30 years, they have been a voice for all victims of crime and those who serve them. Their staff members are skilled at guiding victims down the right path so they feel empowered to move forward and maneuver through the criminal justice system. You can learn more about the many ways that SCBAN guides victims and educates communities by visiting their website at scvan.org. We're back, and Kara has survived being kidnapped, gagged, put into a container, and sexually assaulted. After the panic attack she had in the container, her captor drugged her with Valium and forced her to smoke marijuana with him throughout the day. Eventually, towards the end of the night, with both marijuana and Valium in her system, she was told that it was time to go to sleep. At that point, he began to restrain Kara for the night and put handcuffs on both her wrists. And then there was, it's called a quick link, which is essentially like a carabiner with a screw clasp that holds it closed that he attached to the middle of the handcuffs, kind of where the handcuffs are connected to one another. He put the quick link around that and it was connected to a rope that ran behind the bed and was attached to the frame of the bed. I also had a restraint, a leg restraint that was on my right ankle, and that was connected to a rope to the foot of the bed. And he did all of this in his bed when it was time for bed and laid down beside me, and he fell asleep, and so did I. And then you you wake up. What time was it in the morning? said it was really early light? Yeah, I don't remember actually seeing the time, but I knew that there was that early morning light coming through the windows before the sun's all the way up. There was a a window next to the bed, and so I could see out the window that it was very early in the morning. And you realize that you have a moment of opportunity. So from what you remember, 
when do you discover that moment and what action do you take? I always assumed that my opportunity to escape would be while he was sleeping. I knew that the time that he would be the most unaware of what I was doing would be when he was sleeping. And I knew that would be my opportunity to escape. And so I woke up. I saw that he was still asleep. I could hear him heavily breathing next to me in sleep. And so I knew this was my opportunity. And I knew the first thing that I had to do was get my hands free. So I obviously tried to slide my hands out of the handcuffs. Couldn't do that. So I realized I would have to disconnect them from the bed tried to unscrew the quick link with my fingers, was unable to do that. And so I actually had to scoot my kind of body up to my hands. They were kind of above my head and use my teeth to unscrew the quick link, slide my the handcuffs out of the quick link, slide my arms down my leg to the leg restraint, disconnect that, and then slid out of bed. I was in a t-shirt that was his and a pair of underwear at the time. And so I found my shorts, went to the front door. It was more or less barricaded just with the plastic container, an open closet door that was blocking the front door and things hanging out of the closet. And then the door was also locked and dead bolted. So I had to move all of the things out from in front of the door while he is essentially on the other side of a wall from where I was at sleeping and unlock the front door in silence. I still to this day do not know how I was able to do all of those things with two hands. It feels like I grew an extra arm during that time, but was able to move everything, open the door and just ran. I thought... Surely he's going to wake up. He's going to look out the window beside his bed. He's going to grab the gun that's beside his bed, and he's going to shoot me. And I thought, it doesn't even matter. I'm out of the apartment. Someone will find me. Someone will find him. And so I ran, knowing that these could be the last moments of my life. I ran across the parking lot. I saw a car driving across the parking lot and ran out in front of it, flagged it down, and told the two men inside, I was kidnapped and I escaped from that apartment, turned around and pointed to it. And they said, okay, what do you want to do? And I said, take me to the police. And so they said, get in the car, get in the car. I got in the car and they took me to the police department. So the two men took Kara to the police department and they just dropped her off. They didn't even take her inside. Kara walked into what she later learned was a sheriff's department substation. So it was not heavily staffed. It was early morning, and she went into this office looking for a person, someone, anyone who could help her. The handcuffs were still dangling from her wrist. And I hear a voice say, ma'am, excuse me, ma'am, can I help you? And I I go towards the voice. I see a deputy sitting in there, sheriff's deputy sitting in there. And I tell him, my name's Kara Robinson. I was kidnapped and I escaped. And I held up my arm with the handcuffs dangling while I told him who I was. And he said, okay, let's sit down. Let me get your information. Tell me what happened. And so I begin to tell him what happened. And while I'm doing this, he goes to the NCIC database, which is the National 
database for essentially crime, missing persons, guns, things like that. And he's typing in my name and trying to find me. And I distinctly remember the the clatter of keys and the and this dink noise, like a, a failure noise and and him saying, hmm, and kind of going back, typing it in again. It takes him a few tries before he's able to locate me. And he finally locates me as a missing person, is taking the report, has notified an investigator. So I would say I was there for 10 or 15 minutes before he actually calls my mom. And that's another one of those things that I can still very vividly hear. So I said that I have these snapshots. There's not a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot of sounds that I still really vividly remember. But the sound of my mom's voice coming through the phone, I could hear her, even though she wasn't on speaker, I could hear her through the phone that was he was holding. And he said, ma'am, I have your daughter. And I could hear her, her voice just heartbroken. I can only imagine as a parent now what she must have been feeling. And I can hear her say, Kara, you have Kara? And he, he, you know, he says, yes, ma'am. She's sitting right here. And I, I talked to her and I don't actually remember this conversation, like my side of it. I don't remember anymore. But from my mom's perspective and, and her recollections, I said, mom, please come and get me. And she's like, baby, I'll be right there. And so she makes her way there. Uh, before she gets there, an investigator responds. And he's actually the one who removes the handcuffs. He uses a handcuff key, removes the handcuffs from my wrist and tells me the men that brought me in didn't remember the apartment I came out of and asks me if I can go back and locate the apartment. <laughs> so we <sighs> we go back to the apartment complex and essentially from the information that I remember about the apartment itself, I'm able to give it to someone who works there. And they immediately are like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know what apartment that is. So they kind of log that information, take me back to the sheriff's department, at which point my mom has arrived and uh, she takes me to the hospital for a sexual assault exam. And while you're at the hospital, the investigators are doing their work and they come to you with a lineup of photographs. Yeah. While I was waiting for the sexual assault exam, the investigators actually brought me a photo lineup. And it's my understanding that photo lineup was created by cross-referencing all of the information that I remembered, which was about his doctor, his dentist, the type of car he drove, all of those things. They were able to use all of that information and find out his identity before they could get a warrant to who was renting that apartment. And so they bring me a photo lineup, six photos. I look at it, immediately identify my captor and circle him. And that's when I find out who he is. His name's Richard Markovonitz. And he, up to this point, was completely off the radar. And so you're at the hospital with your mom doing the sexual assault kit, which just the trauma within 
that process, first of all, now that you have done this work supporting victims and survivors and working in law enforcement, how do you look back at that? I don't remember a ton about the actual exam, but what I do remember is not wanting anyone else to be in there. A sexual assault exam is very explicit. Where did they touch you? Did their mouth touch you? All of these details you have to give them, and they take a lot of swabs. It's very, very invasive. Now, sexual assault nurse examiners are very, very good at what they do. And most agencies will actually have a victim's advocate of some type that is available that can sit in there with you, that can explain the process, that can give you support if that's something you want. But for me, I did not want anyone in there other than the sexual assault nurse examiner. And so the thing that most nurse examiners are very good at, victim's advocates, that they do is they ask permission and they follow the lead of the survivor. And so while these exams are by their nature relatively invasive and can be extensive, there is a lot of empowerment that can be done through that process by letting the person know what's going to happen and letting them have the amount of control that's possible. What a massively important job. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're fantastic humans and they are so highly trained and prosecution just would not be possible without them. So at what point do you learn that they've identified him and he's on the run, your captor? I am not sure when during the process I found out that he was on the run. I knew that they identified him when they brought me the photo lineup. And I assumed that he would not be at the apartment when law enforcement responded. And so I can't remember exactly when someone told me that he was on the run, but it was already something that I, I kind of knew would happen. And so he was more or less in the wind for a few days until his sister basically set him up, I was supposed to meet him at a restaurant in Florida, and they set up, essentially law enforcement set up a stakeout for this restaurant he saw law enforcement and led them on a police chase up until they deployed stop sticks, at which point his tires were punctured, his car kind of spun out of control. And when they sent in a police canine to get him to surrender, he shot himself and he died. Do you remember being notified that he was dead? The next morning, I was told that he died, and I was, I was pretty mad that no one told me when it happened because it had happened the night before. I guess maybe that's the slight irrationality of a 15-year-old brain <laughs> that I expected someone to wake me up in the middle of the night and tell me, but I, I found out the next day. And I know you had mixed emotions because you really wanted – for him to know that you had taken him down and, and some... Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. I 
I, I think my strongest reaction when I found out was I was just really angry. I was angry no one had told me. I was angry that I would not get my day in court because I wanted him to know that picking me was the biggest mistake that he made and that he was outsmarted by a 15-year-old. I wanted that vindication. Now, as time has passed, I have kind of changed that opinion to uh, still a little bit of mixed feelings, but more so relief that I never had to go through a trial. There was never any question of his guilt. It wasn't drawn out. It kind of just was sort of over as far as the prosecution and the court case for him and me. And I, I think it being over, in a sense, that was the mode you went into was, I'm fine, mm-hmm. it's over. And people in their own mind want to instinctively go to the Hollywood movie version where it's this dramatic reunion and there's, you know, therapists and special, you know, I don't know what what people perceive, but it's not that you just go home and say, everything's fine. It's over. And that was what happened, right? That's what I wanted to happen. And I think that we have better perceptions of the reality of these situations now and the fact that there is no normal. There's no normal response to an abnormal situation like this. But for me, I felt fine because I was dissociated. I didn't feel like I was traumatized. I I honestly would not have characterized at that time the definition of what PTSD was then and the reactions that I had seen on TV. I did not characterize myself as being traumatized or having PTSD. So I thought, I feel fine. I don't want anyone to treat me any differently because I don't feel any different. Uh, now, obviously, having learned what I've learned in the years since, and being older and wiser, I can recognize that I had some trauma, mostly due to this dissociation and kind of shutting all of it off. And my my biggest symptoms over time would be bodily symptoms, which are very heavily associated with a dissociative trauma response. While we may not be recognizing that we actually have trauma, that we are traumatized, that something difficult happened, it still is logged in our brain in some level and very often in our body. And so that's what things like somatic work and EMDR, that's that's kind of what they work on are these other ways that our body logs trauma. But to that point, what I knew and what I had seen was only this outwardly traumatized person which was, you know, someone that sat in a room and didn't want to see anyone and would scream and cry and and that wasn't what I experienced. Yeah, and thinking about it, the same instinct in the car that protected you that immediate PTSD. Well, it would you, you will talk about it, but go on yeah. for de- decades until um but the other thing is so you feel this I'm fine. And I know there was already a lot going on, that your parents had gotten divorced the year before, you're in the middle of high school. You know, then there's this work of reintegrating and going back to school. And I've heard you talk about it, and I know for my years as a journalist, there's like this 
bizarre, almost like celebrity culture mm-hmm. that exists when yeah. there's a sensational crime in a community. And I am curious if you had that experience. Absolutely. People wanted to be part of it. I, I don't even begin to understand how that happens, but especially in high school, I feel like it's really amplified because you think of like the the amplified emotions and hormones and the lack of full frontal lobe functioning. And yeah, in high school, it was just, it was especially difficult to hear those stories knowing that if anyone wanted to know the details, they could simply come to me and ask. Of course, no one's going to do that though, that they're just going to kind of make up these alternate realities and which- You're being, yeah, talked about and gossiped about. And yeah, I mean, no- high school girl wants to be gossiped about, but hello. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I was so just painfully stubborn about my truth that whenever people would, you know, make up these stories that weren't even that significant, honestly, I was just like, no, that's, that's not what happened. Like, if you want to know, come and talk to me. And so it added a level of complexity to the situation for sure. Yeah. That makes sense. At what point did you learn that he was a serial killer and there had been other victims? It was a slow trickle of information that I was receiving that led me to believe that he had committed other crimes. I think fairly quickly the information came out that they suspected he was involved in other crimes. And that was from evidence they found in his apartment. I still thought that he was going to let me go. And so it took me a very long time to come to grips with the fact that he was a serial killer and I would have been another victim of his. A few months later, Richard Ivanitz was linked via DNA trace and fingerprint evidence to three murders in 1996 and 1997 of three girls in Virginia. Two of them were sisters, and all three were teenagers. Kara believes he is responsible for more, and in time, she hopes more evidence will be able to prove this. Did you ever connect with their families? Yes, I was able to meet the families of the three girls in September of 2002. I was given an award for information leading to the identification or capture of the person responsible for those murders. There was a task force that formed and and they had some reward money. And so I was given an award for that. And I was able to meet the parents of the two girls and meet the sister and the parents of um, the other girl. What was that experience like? I think that I didn't necessarily understand it at the time, Mm -hmm. the gravity of what I was experiencing. But now looking back on it, it is one of the most powerful things and something that I one day hope to be able to give to other people by linking him to other unsolved cases, but they didn't know what happened to their daughters for, you know, six, seven years. They had no idea. And 
it was just incredibly emotional, incredibly powerful, and um, one of the, I mean, one of the highlights of my life to be able to give them not closure, closure is a falsity, uh, just give them answers. Yeah. There was another relationship that was born out of this that was really meaningful and impactful in your life, and, and that was a sheriff in the jurisdiction where you were found. Can you tell me about the role he played you said really in seeing you as a survivor, not a victim, and where that led you professionally. Absolutely. So I, as you can imagine, had a lot of law enforcement interaction following my escape, and that was to varying levels of success. And I had the gamut of people treating me like a victim, people treating me with absolute, you know, kid glove treatment. And that went all the way to a man who became essentially a family member over the years. And that was Sheriff Lott of Richland County. He was the sheriff at the time. He actually is still the sheriff. Here we are 21 years later. And he just treated me like a survivor. He Instead of telling me how sorry he felt for me or telling me that this person would have killed me, he said, I'm really proud of you. Like you did something really difficult. You were very brave. And he gave me an award for courage and bravery. He kept in touch with my family. And the next summer actually called my mom and said, how does Kara feel about working at the sheriff's department? And he offered me a summer job working at the sheriff's department doing administrative work. And that was something that I continued to do through high school and college during the summers up until I graduated college, at which point the sheriff had become another father figure in my life. And he sat me down, as he would do every semester when he looked at my grades. He was sitting me down and saying, so you're getting close to graduation. What are you thinking about doing? And I said, well, I was thinking about changing my major, maybe becoming a teacher. And he said, well, you know, you'll always have a job here doing what you want. And if you want to change your major, you want to be a teacher, obviously, we support that. But if you want to stay here, there's an option. You could be a school resource officer. It's combining both jobs. And I thought, I think that would be okay. <laughs> so so I took him up on it. I ended up going to the academy after I graduated from college. I went to the police academy and absolutely fell in love with the work. I think a lot of people expected me to say I got into this job because I wanted to help other people like me. And I think it was eventually that became a very large motivating factor. But at the end of the day, when I got into law enforcement, it was like, why not? And then I did it. And I realized I actually really loved the people. I had grown up in the sheriff's department, more or less. I worked there from the time I was 16 until I was 28. So I had a family there. And made it a career. So I, after the academy, I worked as a school resource officer. I eventually went on to become an investigator, investigating sexual assault and child abuse cases. And finally, a victim's advocate, a sworn law enforcement victim's advocate, where I was helping other people who had been through difficult experiences and helping them to heal and get counseling and get financial assistance and whatever they would need. 
I know a lot of this is looking back and, and during that time you were feeling disassociated from the trauma, but do you look at that work as healing to your trauma, even though you weren't fully cognizant of it at that time? I don't know if it was necessarily healing of me because the biggest things that I experienced long-term that I needed healing of was that my body was stuck in fight or flight and my primary coping mechanism was dissociation. It had served me really well, but doesn't serve you well long-term because you don't actually deal with anything. And so I can see how that would be healing for a lot of people to kind of right the wrongs that you experienced. But for me, it was just kind of doing the work that I had seen done for me and doing that for others and working cases in a way that would leave me proud and the way I would want them worked. And so the cases that I got, I I worked really, really hard. And the first arrest I made as an investigator was actually a case that should have been an open and closed documentation only case, but I didn't work it that way. So for me, I think I had a a passion and a drive to work the cases that I was given maybe a little bit more than other people or maybe more than I would have had had I not had the experiences I had. So what is the point where you decide to become aware of the trauma, the cost of living in that state of fight or flight, and that you, well, first of all, what was the cost of those almost two decades before you decided to really dive in to the trauma? I realized for me, the cost of dissociating was that my body was continuing to log the difficult things that would happen to me over the years, but I wasn't responding emotionally. And so I was more or less, for lack of a better way to describe it, I was emotionally constipated. It was not dealing with things. And so the only thing that was coming out with any sort of regularity was anger. I think that's probably the most difficult emotion to control. And so after the birth of my second child, I was experiencing what I now know was postpartum depression. It didn't feel like postpartum depression at the time. And I think that's very often the case. Um, But coming out the other side of that, I was just really, really angry. I wasn't feeling much else other than angry. During the years, my response to difficult feelings, difficult situations is that I actually would consciously tell myself, Kara, stop. You're not going to do that. You're not going to cry. You're not going to show emotions because you're strong. Because I had gotten this label that we would we would think of as a positive label. Just goes to show you the negativity of assigning any labels, whether we think that they are good or bad. But I had received this label that I was strong. And in my head, that means that I could not cry. I would consciously tell myself to stop doing that, stop feeling And I was just really, really angry. I didn't realize immediately 
what that was causing in my body. But over time, I began to realize that my bodily symptoms of this trauma and dissociating was that I couldn't breathe most of the time. I couldn't take a deep breath. The likelihood that that was linked to me feeling like I can't breathe when I was put back in that container, I would say is pretty high. Uh, (laughs) But what essentially happens when we dissociate is our body still feels all of that. The easiest way to describe it is I think at some point, anyone who drives has been driving, you stop and you look up in their rearview mirror and you see someone coming towards you and they're coming way too fast in your rearview mirror and you think they're going to hit you. If you just close your eyes and you imagine that scenario, you will feel a sensation in your body somewhere. For some people, they may feel it in their stomach. For some people, they may tighten their butt cheeks. For me, it was holding my breath. And so my body had recognized that I had never dealt with that traumatic situation. And I was essentially holding my breath for 15 to 20 years. And I eventually was able to recognize that and get EMDR therapy, which is a unique form of therapy that enables both sides of your brain to kind of talk to each other and for you to reprocess traumatic memories and get them unstuck. And so I was able to breathe after EMDR and then consciously stopped myself. It it took a a couple of years, but consciously stopped myself from this process of, no, we're not going to feel that. We're strong and kind of unlabeling myself as strong and allowing myself to feel emotions. It was a lot of conscious work and somatic work. And I honestly did a vast majority of it through information that I found online and just being very persistent. I know. I was like, how the hell do you even begin this work? Right. And now you're a mom. <laughs> yeah. And and it's like this beautiful yet inconvenient like shit. And now I have to feel everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, it was It was out of necessity. My husband had a job that took him out of the country two-thirds of the year at that point. Our insurance did not cover mental health, so mental health assistance was not accessible for me. And most jurisdictions, and, and should be every state, there is a victim's compensation fund, which will assist with providing therapy. But I was outside the window for assistance for that. Now, I probably could have kind of dug in and gotten it anyway, honestly. But that just felt like too much for me at that time. And so I thought, something's got to give. I'm essentially solo parenting most of the time at this point in my life. And I was just really angry with my kids all the time. And I didn't want them to grow up in that environment. So I had to start searching for answers online. I think, you know, sometimes the internet can be too big and there can be too much information. It can be too overwhelming. But I was able to find the information and try a bunch of different things and find something that worked for me. And it was a lot of self-care. It was a lot of stress reduction techniques and kind of unique ways to deal with stress from, you know, whenever we hear, especially if you're a mother, you're solo parenting, you're single parenting, you're parenting in general, and someone says, well, you just need to reduce your stress. You're like, okay, (laughs) like, how do I do that? And so, For me, it was 
uniquely looking at my life and the things that stressed me, whether it was foods that I knew didn't agree with me. Well, that's stress, right? So try not to eat those foods, whether it was clutter in my home that was stressing me, just trying to reduce those smaller measures because the things that were the most stressful and then things like um, meditation and gratitude journaling, emotional freedom technique, otherwise known as tapping, uh, parasympathetic breathing, which activates your rest and digest system, things that I could learn to do or do on my own that were free and accessible, those were the things that were the most healing to me. And I think that's an important thing to talk about. And if you have access to therapy, a therapist can teach you all of these tools, these somatic works and things that can help you heal. But if you don't, you can also learn these things on your own and you can do them on your own. And so that was what was the most healing for me. I love that, that you are sharing those tools and also framing it in a way that's accessible because for so many people, it isn't realistic, whether it's time or finances or where they live. So all of those modalities. And um, and you're also, and I'm going to you know push our listeners to your podcast or convince you to let me drop an episode in our feed. But I think all of this healing, you're also really raw and honest and not sugarcoating that none of this means that that there's a rainbow and an end and yeah. all this. <laughs> yeah, I think that that can get us in, in trouble. And, and hopefully the tide is changing on this, but I think that in the past five to 10 years of the internet, we've seen this toxic positivity culture, this, oh, I went through something difficult, but, but where's the silver lining? You know, I'm alive, but I survived, but, and it's like, no, it, it can just be crappy. You can yeah. say, I'm really angry. I went through something difficult. It sucks. I'm hurting right now. That's fine. There doesn't have to be a silver lining always. And I think that I try to be as authentic as possible about the things that I'm going through because at the end of the day, the lack of knowledge about all of the different emotions and all of the different responses to difficult situations and trauma is what leads to people feeling isolated and and alone and weird in how they're responding. And I think the more we share our journey authentically, the more, first of all, the more we can feel known and, and healed ourselves, but the more other people can feel seen and begin to heal. Yeah, I love that. So you're a mom and you have some beautiful writing about motherhood, I have to say. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> It'll, it will bring your stuff up so oh, much. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Our greatest little teachers slash triggers. Yeah. Um, so you have two boys, and as we speak, you are very pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. How do you reconcile as a mom your kids and their sense of safety in the world? It can be difficult, and I think that Mothers are very often the ones that are more concerned with safety. I think maybe it's because we put so much work into getting these little little people into the world. But naturally, I think we as mothers tend to be more anxious about our children's safety. And I, as someone who credits themselves as being very intuitive, I can find myself falling into 
an anxiety trap from time to time and wondering, is it my intuition? So what I mean by that is I think intuition and anxiety can very often be confused. I think mothers have an intuition, whether that's, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and being like, there's something going on with my kid and you go into the room and they have a fever. Like moms usually have some type of intuition when it comes to their children, but we also tend to have more anxiety about their safety. And so I can sometimes feel myself falling into this trap of thinking that it's an intuition when it's actually just anxiety about their safety. And so I have to be very careful to separate those and kind of temper my anxiety with reality. And one of the questions I get very, very often is, are you worried about something like this happening to your children? I have to temper that with a little bit of reality, which is what happened to me, a stranger kidnapping is fairly uncommon. That's fairly rare. And so I obviously prepare my children for that type of situation. I teach them to be aware of their surroundings and let them practice being aware of their surroundings and teach them, you know, not to talk to strangers, all of that stuff. But what I work on more is the more realistic way that my children could potentially become victims. What we know from looking at cases in which children become victims of some type is that it's generally someone that they know. And so from a very young age, protecting my children from becoming victims of someone they know looks like using anatomically proper terms because I don't want there to ever be a confusion of if someone has touched them in an, in, in an inappropriate way of where they were touched. So we don't use any nicknames. We use the anatomical terms for their body parts. That was done from birth. We also are very big on boundary setting and no means no and body autonomy. So my children know and they hear very often, I've set a boundary around my personal space and you're not respecting that. Or I have told you not to I always say glom on me because I think it's like the perfect term for what children do sometimes with their little like sticky, sweaty selves and they just want to like touch all on you. And it's usually, you know, at the end of the day when you just simply cannot stand being touched another second. And so they have always heard me set boundaries around my body and we, within reason, obviously, allow them to set boundaries around their body. We let them practice that. And we teach them to respect that with other people because the flip side of this is while I do not want my boys to become victims, I also don't want them to one day become an offender, right? So they need to practice saying no about their body, but they also need to practice responding to someone else's no. And so that looks like, you know, if they're being tickled and they say stop, okay, we stop immediately. And so that's what safety looks like for me as a parent who was a victim as a child. It looks like all these little steps that empowers them to speak up against something that doesn't feel right to their body, but also listen to what other people say doesn't feel good to their body. Which presumably is 
most likely way more impactful and long life lasting than don't talk to strangers. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my hope. Right. And I think, I think the unfortunate reality that we have to accept as parents is that the moment that child is not connected to your body, you lose the ability to protect them at all times. At some point that child's going to leave your presence is going to go out into the world and become an adult. And if we are not preparing them in the time that they are with us, for those moments that they're away from us, we're doing them a huge disservice. In addition to public speaking and sharing her story, Kara works with law enforcement and those who are on the front lines working with victims. She teaches them communication tools that can make a huge impact in the immediate aftermath of a crime. One of the biggest things that I talk to law enforcement about is the power of believing a victim when they say something and how that doesn't have an impact on your prosecution of the case. I think that's kind of an incorrect belief that law enforcement can sometimes have. I share that and I give law enforcement words to use to empower people, whether it's I believe what you're saying. Now it's my job to gather enough evidence to make a judge and jury believe that. Or whether it's saying, I'm so proud of you. I know this must be really difficult. You're doing something that's probably really hard, but I want you to know that I'm going to help you as much as I can. Just giving them little tips and tricks and small things that aren't going to have a negative effect on their job. Probably about a year ago, I got a message after a conference that I did. It was from someone who worked sexual assault and child abuse cases. And they said, I have to tell you, I used the things that you taught me at the conference. And I have worked these cases for many years. And I experienced something I've never experienced. It was a child sexual assault case. And this person said, I use those terms And I told this young girl that she was so brave and I was so proud of her for what she was doing. And she smiled. And that's not something I've ever experienced. And I cannot thank you enough. And I just think that's what it's about. That's why I do this. Because I have days where this is difficult. But when I have messages like that or I have someone that comes up to me after a keynote and they say, when you said you experienced that. I've never heard anyone talk about what I experienced. I've never felt so seen. Those are the moments that remind me why what I'm doing is so important. And those are the moments that keep me going. Before we end, I would love for you to tell our listeners about your podcast. Absolutely. So in the vein of helping people heal and not feel alone, I knew for a long time that sharing stories like mine was important. And I met Kim Corbin, who is another survivor. I met her through TikTok, through the internet. 
We became immediate friends, and we ventured together into this podcast world. We started a podcast called Survivor's Guide to True Crime. We wanted to share stories of people who have been through difficult things, but allow them a sense of control and share these stories in a way that was ethical. Most importantly, ethical true crime content is done in a way that empowers the person whose story is being told. It's being told with a purpose. It's being told with permission. And the best way is it's being told with the participation of the person who is the story is about. And so we also believe that these difficult things that people go through are the least interesting thing about them. We think that what people do after, that's the real stuff that we want to hear about. Because you can hear these stories, these amazing stories of what people have survived. But when you hear what they did afterwards, I think that is the real empowering part. It's just been one of my favorite things that I've been able to do. It is incredibly time-consuming, and it is incredibly difficult at times, but it's it's very but rewarding. It's, yeah. It's I, I can guarantee you that there's people listening who love true crime. Yeah. And what I have to say is – so I think you could describe it and people think, well, this is going to be very serious. They are – really funny. They have super dark sense of humor. Yeah, dark humor. Yeah. It's like friends being intimate and bantering. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who guessed, some of which you've been on this show, but have been in really national, high-profile, high-media victim and survivors. And their story's been told a million times and people have profited on it. But the ease of your connection and humanity and like really seeing who they are as people, not just defined by this. So I, it's important and it's meaningful. It's, it's also very like real and fun to listen to. I'm so thankful that you said that because that is our goal. We kind of ventured into this knowing that we had made connections in this survivor community and leaning on that because these were the conversations that we were having offline. These were the conversations that we were having amongst survivors. I just thought, what a disservice we're doing to society that people who have also experienced difficult things don't get to have these conversations always. So how can we bring this to a a larger audience where we can sit down with someone who, like you said, whose story you've heard, and we can connect with them on a different level and we can talk about the real stuff that you may not hear in an interview. It's, you know, these stories, and I'm speaking to our listeners right now, that you have heard with like really dramatic, sensational music playing in the background or blood splattered or, and trust me, like I worked in television, I've <laughs> fitted, this is, this is actually like curling up on a couch with the person. Like yeah. it's them as real human, it ta it's just, it's so good. It's so yeah. good and it's so needed and it's really interesting. So I hope my gushing review will, <laughs> will bring you new listeners. Yeah, so I you. will end with asking you, Kara, what do you hope people listening take away from your story? I have always, always hoped that people listening to my story understand a few things. First and foremost is that even though you've 
gone through something difficult, it doesn't have to define your life. It can be what you take from it. You don't have to continue to affiliate yourself as a victim. You can define yourself as a survivor or something different if that doesn't feel right. And I also want people to not feel alone, not feel strange in their responses. And I want people to know that what I did, there wasn't anything special or significant within me that is not within you. So have faith in yourself and your survival system and know that you can get through difficult things and you can absolutely become a better version of yourself eventually. I loved our conversation and I just think everything you're doing is really real and honest and impactful. And I'm grateful to share it with our listeners and our community. So thanks, Kara. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making the time to listen to today's conversation with Kara. I hope you will join us next week on A Little Wiser, where we dive deeper into the many important issues Kara addressed today. This has been All the Wiser, produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. Our associate producer continues to be the excellent Tara Daigle. And our editor and composer is John LaSala, who's not half bad himself. And of course, our host is Kimmy Culp. And I get to do the sign-off this week. So until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.